The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio and this is the Cambridge Film Show, your fortnightly one-stop shop for shop talk on all films, big and small, to catch in the city and South Cambridgeshire. I'm Lorcan O'Neill and with me today are Mark Walsh. Hello. Uh, Will Johnson. Hello. Vicky Eyre. Hello. And Stuart Pask. Hello. Thanks to all who turned it, tuned in for our Top 12 of 2023 show just before Christmas, now available in podcast form, along with all of our other fabulous episodes and lots of Cambridge 105 radio content on the website. Um, but that means we have an absolute bumper show for you all today, perhaps more of an endurance race than anything else, uh, as we try to cover as many releases between December 9th and January 5th that you can still catch on streaming. Today we'll be covering Bradley Cooper's sophomore directorial feature Maestro. Godzilla makes post-war Japan his stomping ground on the 70th, 70th anniversary of the devastating kaiju. Sofia Coppola brings us an examination of the relationship between Elvis and Priscilla Presley. Jason Momoa dons the sequin scales again in Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Stu and I will tell you why you should or shouldn't avoid uh, Zack Snyder's uh, bifurcated sci-fi epic Rebel Moon. Anthony Hopkins looks back on his life as a London broker who takes action against the Nazi occupation. Those poultry are here at, are at it again in Netflix's sequel to acclaimed Ardman animation's Chicken Run. Animation Meister Hayao Miyazaki's latest and final Studio Ghibli film, The Boy and the Heron. Michael Fassbender plays football coach turned cautionary tale in Taika Waititi's Next Goal Wins. And if we have time, Adam Driver puts on another Italian accent for his portrayal of Enzo Ferrari and Breathe. Um, so without further ado... Oh, um, so we'll get, st- we'll get started straight into Maestro. We'll, we'll miss the trailer for this one. Just um, Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan star as struggling husband and wife duo Leonard and Felicia Bernstein. When actress Felicia falls for the fabulously eccentric composer and affair begins, the ramifications of which beyond, uh, extend beyond themselves in ways they can't imagine. Um, Mark. Hello. Um, so a follow-up to A Star is Born. How did you find that? How did you find this as a follow-up to that movie? Uh, I was really excited coming to this because I'm a big fan of Bradley Cooper's work on Star is Born. I thought he did a fantastic job. I thought it was a great character piece. It really encapsulated the music very well. And uh, also, Leonard Bernstein is one of the most fascinating figures in 20th century music. So mm. what better to see a biopic examining his life, his relationships, uh, and trying to shine some light on his career. And what a disappointment in so many of those contexts. Oh, no. Uh, and I, I, I'll try and start with the positives, and I do think, um, despite all the, the Ferrara and, and all the debate about whether or not Bradley Cooper should have worn this prosthetic nose to play Bernstein, mm. and whether or not Kerry Mulligan was, was necessarily the right choice because of her ethnicity in casting for um, uh, Felicia, uh, his wife... I actually think they're two fantastic performances. I do think they work very well. They've got a, a, a good chemistry together. Um, you believe both uh, their their dynamism. Dynamism. I can't even say it. Start of the year. Dynamism. There yes. we go. Uh, yes, there's a few things not quite working in the studio this morning, and my vocabulary is one of them. Uh, dynamism, uh, you believe that together, but also you, you can see quite clearly where the tension is arising from, and uh, Bradley Cooper and Kerry Mulligan do really sell uh, both of those characters really well. I just got two minor issues with the film, and it's the script and the direction, unfortunately. Um, I will be very frustrated if Bradley Cooper wins any awards for directing in this award season, because I think it's one of the worst directed films I can remember seeing, which astonishes me, given how good his work was uh, on uh, A Star Is Born. Uh, Whether that's the shadow of two of the producers, Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, just sort of looming, and whether or not he just overthought certain things that were coming into the film, I'm not quite sure. Um, So much doesn't work for me in terms of the direction or in terms of trying to give the context of Bernstein's career because 
it, he's somebody who people may not necessarily know uh, if they're coming into the film, the, the absolute breadth of the career that he had as a, a composer, a conductor, an educator, and the film doesn't necessarily give you that insight. It's, it's focused on his relationship. And so, consequently, you get these repeated bouts of exposition in interviews, uh, just trying to outline some of his achievements. It, it doesn't really understand the show-don't-tell mm. principle. It's not really focused on, on you know, delivering a, a real genuine image of why Bernstein the man was so great at what he did. See, I, 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 I like the fact that um, I, I was expecting at least one big set piece around like the set of West Side Story. West Side Story gets one mention and one musical cue and that's it. I don't I don't think the film had much interest in going into his like his work life so much, whereas it's only where the work life kind of interceded with his family life, which I kinda liked. I know you mentioned Scorsese and Spielberg. I think Spielberg was originally gonna direct this and then he watched Star is Born and he handed it off to uh, Bradley Cooper. So I think there was quite a tight turnaround and like writing the film, planning it all out. And I, it took me a while to get into it with the transatlantic accents, and uh, I got over the nose pretty quickly. Um, but did you not? Did you not feel like the drama, the drama was earned at any point, or there was a, a, a good balance between focusing the energy of the scene on the, uh, the kind of the orchestra scenes or, and then kind of subduing it a bit for the drama or do you think it just was too mixed matched um i would say i think it's too mixed matched and yeah there are again highlights to mention here the big one of course being uh, when bernstein conducted the performance of marla's second symphony in ely cathedral in, in the mid-1970s mm. uh, which was i believe the only scene actually filmed outside of america and they actually came to ely cathedral yes. to film it and i had this weird moment of recognition but again the film makes slightly odd choices because what it could be doing there is emphasizing the sacrifice that felicia has made in travelling all the way to England to see a concert like that when she's already starting to have health struggles. Mm. But the film doesn't, if you're not a, a, an expert in cathedrals, give you that context of where it is and what's going on. So consequently, you, you, it's underselling quite what's happening in the dynamic of the relationship. And there's, there's so many simple things that could have been tweaked for greater effect. Um, but for for me, maybe it's because you know I've I've been a big fan of classical music uh, for so many years, and I, I've I've presented a classical program on this very station uh, in the past, and so you know I wanted to get some sense from the film of quite why Bernstein was so great to sell to other people to mm. to go oh I should go and explore Bernstein's music now, and people will know the likes of West Side Story and maybe some of the other bits and pieces of work as well, and you know just a, a, a two hour film just regurgitating his career highlights might have been a bit dull. What the film does, which is even worse, is regurgitating takes those career highlights at random points in the soundtrack so we get a bit of the overture from West Side Story in a scene where two people arrive in a car it doesn't complement the scene in any way unfortunately <laughs> and there are so many other scenes with dramatic tension where that music would have worked spectacularly well it just feels like so many frustrating missed opportunities um, you know and, and also I would say it's a little reticent into really getting into understanding maybe some of Bernstein's flaws. It does, I feel, in some ways, kind of pull back from those aspects of his, of his character, maybe where other biopics would have been willing to really dive in and understand you know, the, the, the composite of the man and how you know, both his genius and his flaws had, had made him what he was. And, and just maybe it's a little too respectful in some instances. Oh, okay. Um, well, a bit of divisiveness here. Mark, Mark's the, the Bernstein kind of aficionado. I, I'm more of a I don't know a lot about Leonard Bernstein, but I enjoyed it. I, my, my, my one sentence would be, 
you should have known more having seen this film and that is its biggest flaw if you can still catch it in cinemas anywhere which I, I think is doubtful now it's worth it for that Ely Cathedral scene definitely uh, it's a certificate 15 and it's streaming on Netflix um now, a slightly change, change in tact, let's soar over the skies of Japan for a glimpse at Godzilla. Toho Studios brings us a new iteration of the monster legend, this time set to the backdrop of a literally and morally devastated Tokyo following World War II. When Kuichi, a deserter kamikaze pilot, comes, across, comes home to the ruined city, he takes up with a small fishing vessel just as a super, supercharged gorilla turtle starts attacking mainland Japan. Um, Stu, how does this kind of uh, fit into like the larger Godzilla canon? Oh. So this is, uh, this, is, this is, much to my shame, this is my first Japanese um, proper Godzilla Well, there's only a movie. few of them. There's not that many. 30 plus, apparently, from my research <laughs> online. <laughs> Just a couple. But um, no, certainly this is my first one, and I was uh, very impressed. Um, so based on the fact that this is only on a, on a relatively small budget compared to some of the... Uh, of the of the of the cinema release of Godzilla for like for the past few years from Hollywood, only fifteen million dollars to make, um, and it is very impressive to watch in IMAX as well because I saw this on IMAX screening for 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 what is relatively small budget, and it has made it's made a huge profit worldwide. I think there's Oscar nods for this potentially, mm. and and it, and it's. It's it's just sort of really really surprised me. It's it is a little bit sort of cheesy at points. You can see where the sort of the budget was spent, um, and there's these weird moments, particularly with the the CGI, where they seem to have made a stylistic decision to actually to to do a CGI recreation of Godzilla in his traditional guise. Mm. So there's a, maybe it's a stylistic choice because everyone sort of knows around the world that the silhouette, as it were, of what Godzilla looks like. And what Godzilla looks like, historically, is a man in a big rubber suit. <laughs> and it seems like they've said, let's take that template of a man in a big rubber suit and give him a bit of an over a CGI overlay. So there are these sort of weird moments where you've got these sort of impressive CGI explosions mm. mismatched with what is effectively a CGI rendition of a man in a suit, which that—that that sort of is, it does it some sort of, sort of injustice, I think, to say that. But it, it, you can see where they were coming from in the stylistic yeah. choices. So you wish the whole film was just man in rubber suits? So. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, yes, this, this had a reputed budget of uh, fifteen million dollars. Uh, it can't look that great on fifteen million, surely. 
Uh, I think it can, and I think it does a very effective job of managing that money very well. And um, there's a, a destruction scene in the middle of the film, which would grace any Hollywood blockbuster, frankly, and uh, put an awful lot of them to shame. So, I mean, what you want from a Godzilla movie, as much as it's nice to have interesting character work and, and big stories that are being told, is a monster that looks like a man in a rubber suit, but slightly better quality, uh, demolishing as much as he possibly can. And this film absolutely delivers on that you know the, the fact it's got a good uh, a story arc to it you know there's there's a little bit of cheesiness into the way some of the story arcs resolve but you know that's all just part of the entertainment um you know this is a, a, a great time and it's uh, you know an interesting setting as well focusing on that post-war japan era and you know playing into some of the uh, the the feelings of japan about that period in its history um i i personally felt the film was kind of a, a film of two halves but not in the usual way where it felt like the action was written by one person who was very good at setup and payoff and building tension, and then the other person was Days of Our Lives, just absolute cheese. Um, did you guys find there's a bit more of a balance than I did between those two? Uh, on, on the subject of cheese, I felt, yes, that was definitely present. Um, whether that was uh, me as a sort of a Western audience interpreting a, a sort of Japanese cinema, it seemed a bit hammed up at points. Um, and and again, talking about some of the some of the the CGI and the stylistic choices for Godzilla, when you consider where they spent the budget in some scenes versus the CGI, yeah, it does clash sometimes. And 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 he's do sort of sort of I'd sort of stifle a laugh, <laughs> and, and and but but it didn't mean I wasn't having fun, which is the important thing. Mm -hmm. You can only get so far in a Godzilla film without getting goofy. Uh, any final words, Mark, for Godzilla? Oh, well, I mean, if just talking the subject of cheese, I would just say that yeah, if it, it, yeah, even if it's a sort of you know a slice of American cheese, that uh, yeah, you can <laughs> you can enjoy that sometimes. So this is a slice of Japanese cheese, and I enjoyed it probably just as much. Cool. Godzilla Certificate 12A and it's uh, screening at The View and the Light, though I would strongly advise leaving the auditorium as soon as the protagonist gets some news at the end of the film. Um, moving along swiftly to our second biopic around a music legend, here's the trailer for Priscilla. You like Elvis Presley? Of course. Who doesn't? Who do we have here? Well, Elvis, this is Priscilla Bullio. Why don't you say maybe we go somewhere quiet? Just what is the intent here, Mr. Presley? What you got? Women throwing themselves at you. Why my daughter? I happen to be very fond of your daughter. Black hair. Adapted from Priscilla Presley's memoirs, director Sofia Coppola delivers, delivers a story about infatuation and fame as the living legend Elvis Presley, played by Jacob Elordi, takes an interest in teenager Priscilla Beaulieu, played by Kaylee Spaney. Um, Vicky, you caught this quite recently, last night, I think. I did indeed. What's, what's the draw here? What's the, what's the appeal of this film? Uh, the appeal for me is... Uh, I was actually a bit nervous about going into it because I thought, from the perspective of what I've been told it's about, I was... I just I, I knew I'd feel a bit anxious um, throughout maybe the whole draw, but at the end of the day, it is a Sofia Coppola film who I adore, mm. and that's what I got. It was dreamy, and the sets were muted, the colours were great, the soundtrack was amazing without a single Elvis appearance, mm. uh, which is something I didn't know beforehand, but very very it became apparent uh, 
um, as they were showing scenes of Elvis records, but with no music playing. It was definitely something else. Oh, interesting. And I was, I was um, um, but really, apart from a, a Sofia Coppola production, which it definitely was, Kaylee Spenny um, was incredible she is such a draw i was on her side almost straight away um not that a side need to be taken it was very much um it was just from her perspective and i wanted to know how it was going to play out for her i cared about her character i cared about priscilla because she was playing the role so well and um and it's very apparent throughout just how they put a big draw on what's something I didn't realize until I was a bit older, just about the age difference. They definitely make what kind of relationship they had from a woman's side of things just much more apparent to the public eye. And mm. uh, yeah, this film, I, I didn't have maybe an expectation for, but I came out thinking I had a great two hours. Mark, how did how did you find Kaylee and Jacob together? Because I know there's a monumental height difference. Do they do they have chemistry together? Do they use that height difference to any means? Uh, they they do have a chemistry together. Uh, I think what the film does very well as well is capture the transition through time mm-hmm. because uh, Kaylee Spaney has to play Priscilla from the age of fourteen through to the point where their marriage dissolves in in 1973. Slight spoiler there, but I mean, <laughs> this, it, people know the general facts of the story. I, I would hope, and if you don't, it's not going to spoil the film going in. Yeah, and and you really do get a sense from both of them of the evolution through the course of their lives uh, and the way that the changes in each of them impact on the other. Uh, and you know, it, it is again two wonderful performances. Uh, this time in the service of uh, a much more interesting story than we saw in our uh, earlier uh, biopic with Maestro. Not not to do dirty on that one again, but um, I I do feel much more of a sense. And it's weird because this time we don't get, as, as Vicky said, we don't get any of the music bar, maybe a few twinkly notes of Can't Help Falling In Love With You, just mm. just sprinkled on almost like icing uh, at, at points. But actually, it, it's really underlining that this is not a film about Elvis. It's a film about the impact of Elvis, and in particular the impact on the woman that he, I think, loved. Um, but you'll make your own decision having seen the film. Uh, well, Sofia Coppola tends to like making movies about spoiled brats. We can only speculate why. Um, how does this kind of fit into her oeuvre of like kind of teenage woe and angst? Uh, the teenage, yeah, woe and angst is definitely present because uh, a big thing here is that Priscilla needs to graduate and she almost can't graduate being in Elvis's presence. Um, it's definitely the fact that obviously they met in Germany and she had her parents watching over her, but she was still distracted because she was almost the apple of his eye and that's all she could think about because she was so easily influenced from that age and then when she moves in with Elvis and uh, she has this second life almost and she has to still fulfill her grades it's like it's a it's a tantrum almost of why why do I have to finish school why do I have to do this I want to have fun and it's like her dad is like a backbone like almost being like why does he need to pick you you're so young but she's falling asleep in class and you definitely feel like the teenage emotion of like needing to choose either or all well i mean following on the back of baz lerman's elvis film yesterday which there there is uh, a large part of that film is discussing what happens as a culture when we look back on uh, individuals and focus on like the nitty-gritty dirty details rather than the kind of net good how does that play as like a contrast because the films are coming out so close together uh, yeah, and I think it's it's understanding that they've got very different subject matters. You know, one one is looking at the, as you say, the sort of cultural impact and, and cultural appreciation. Uh, the other is looking very much at the, the personal story. 
I think it's very telling that, that Colonel Tom Parker is not in this film. Uh, you know, that is how little it's interested in understanding yeah. the dynamics of Elvis's story. You get you get his career as seen from uh, Priscilla's perspective um, uh, and the way in which it evolves and the way in which sometimes she's uh, unfortunately sort of locked out of what's going on and, and uh, you know, finding things out in the press rather than actually being able to find them out in the relationship and, uh, you know, the, the seemingly odd choices and the the mood swings which he goes through um you know it does feel a much more nuanced portrayal of two people's lives and uh, yeah baz Luhrmann is never going to do nuanced and you don't <laughs> go into that expecting nuance but i think actually these two films will work well as as companion pieces uh, in years to come i actually completely agree with that i think i wouldn't have got the small nods the small phone calls the the pieces of um they showed like a small piece of what was elvis's you know winter special and i wouldn't have felt the impact mm. of the transition in the priscilla film if i hadn't have seen elvis itself i do agree like knowing the background and knowing the story through baz Luhrmann's perception of of elvis really helped me enjoy in the flow of this film in particular um definitely how throughout the, the majority of this film it is that priscilla is just lonely mm. she's not at the set she's not she's just stuck in graceland as a teenage girl loving someone that's far away and that perspective of it and then seeing the glimpses of elvis i uh yeah the, these work very those films work very well together even if it's just a short span of time Wonderful stuff. Well, Priscilla is a certificate 15 and it's screening at the Arts Picture House and 35mm as well as digital and it's also showing at The View. Uh, now for something completely different, here's Aquaman 2. Hi, baby boy. Talking to the fishies. You and me, son, are different. We're special. We're connected to the land and the sea. I can't wait to introduce you to all the majestic creatures on our planet and show you how awesome this world can be. Yeah, you and me. I'm gonna kill Aquaman. Even if I have to make a deal with the devil to do it. Master of the Conjuring Cinematic Universe and the Insidious franchise, uh, horror director James Wan returns to tackle the sequel to his billion-dollar superhero blockbuster in Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. This time, the underwater guardian of Atlantis must join forces with his estranged brother against a renewed threat from Black Manta. Will, um, you seem to have a tolerance for these films that I <laughs> frankly admire. Um, how does Aquaman 2 hold up against its uh, predecessor or precursor? Um, I think the original will always be the best, but uh, surprisingly... I actually enjoyed this. Um, obviously, Arthur Curry, Aquaman, now a father, bored and bewildered about being the king of Atlantis, but sure. then once once again called into action to actually save it from Black Manta, um, played by Abdul Mateen the um, third, and he's become in possession of a black trident which could actually end all mankind, uh, even fits in a bit of global warming, which, well, obviously, we, every film tries to be a bit woke now, and. Uh, Aquaman must now try and um, free his brother and try and actually work with him to actually save the world from all this madness that's actually happening and Atlantis being destroyed. So, funny in places, quite action-packed. Some of the CGI was a bit iffy, but you come to expect that with, you know, this old DCU universe. But yeah. overall, quite good. Yeah, the threads are starting to show, I, I imagine. Um, <laughs> Mark, the first Aquaman film had this kind of bon vivant attitude to its uh, its universe. Is there the same kind of levity here? 
Uh, there's very much a feeling of this is the end of the party. <laughs> Let's not bother. Unfortunately, non-vivant. Like uh, uh, absolutely, and it, it, it's such a shame that writ through this film like a stick of rock is very much this feeling of this is the end of the DC extended universe. Uh, so you know, let's let's just kind of turn up, get our paycheck, and go home. I I just didn't feel the same sense of love and craft. You know, even though it's not the the greatest piece of art in the world, there's an awful lot of fun to be had from the original Aquaman. Mm. Um, not only from the film itself, but from from Jason Momoa's performance. You know, he always gives everything to to everything he's in. You know, his performance in Fast and Furious Ten was a real highlight of cheese <laughs> for me last year. Um, even he feels a little subdued by his own standards here. You know, he gets he gets the, the sort of witticisms and you know doesn't quite throw them off in the same kind of way that he normally would. Um, you've got the weirdness of the likes of Amber Heard and Nicole Kidman just sort of standing in the background of scenes and not having much to say. Uh, you know, they just again it feels like everyone's just turning up, getting their paycheck, and going home. Um, there's an awful lot of the film. It feels like he's, he's attempting to be carried by Patrick Wilson, who's turning up and really kind of trying to just gee everyone else up into to this earnest. Yeah. which the film doesn't earn either um, it's, a, it's an unfortunate way for the DC Extended Universe to come to an end after 15 films yeah. um, but maybe it's time for something completely different which is why uh, um, uh, what's his name James, James Gunn, Gunn is giving us a new Superman film in two years time Thank, uh, ne- next year even I think thanks James <laughs> I think I was a little bit upset though uh, obviously that is ending but I've actually heard that Jason Momoa might make an appearance in the future but as Lobo um, it's like an anti-hero uh, mercenary. That's a much better but, fit for which, him, which, which, think, which would yeah. be good. Um, and only Blue Beetle have actually made made the cut for the new universe. So yeah. Never mind. Oh dear. Well, it's it. Yeah, if, if we can talk a minute about the weirdness of the DC extended universe, because <laughs> we're, we we've had these films which which we've had extended cuts of, and they don't necessarily sort of work as composite pieces. You get you know characters being portrayed vastly differently, people turning up in the likes of The Flash, and, and it doesn't feel like the same versions of the same characters being mm. played by the same people. We're now going into a world where Robert Pattinson's Batman series is going to continue, possibly with spin-off TV series, alongside uh, a Batman being portrayed in the new DC universe, with possibility, as you say, Will, of, of other characters yeah. from this universe still cropping up. I and mean, you got the Joker films, which presumably Bat- Batman's going to show up in the Todd, Phillip, uh, Todd Phillips films as well. Yeah, so... I mean, it's a struggle to ask anyone to care at mm. this point, and I think Marvel is seeing that same effect as well with yeah. a just absolute overload of content. <laughs> um, you know what they have to do going forward. You know, here's me trying to give advice to to Hollywood studios <laughs> making multi-million dollar products. Just, just try and focus on each individual film and make it a quality product. I don't necessarily care if there's a great story to be told 10 films away from, from the new Superman film. I want that to be good. I wanted this to be good because the first Aquaman was. I really wish it had been. It, it didn't work for me. Well, a bit of a deflated ending, RIP DCEU for anyone who still uh, has feelings for that franchise. Uh, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is a certificate 12A and it's showing at The View and The Light. Uh, Now going from Zack Snyder as producer to Zack Snyder as director in Rebel Moon. When I found you in the wreckage of that ship, I considered leaving you. I was afraid you could bring trouble to us. What do you think they want? Everything. 
were to give it its full title, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, as this is the first of two parts being released on Netflix, the next installment due in April, I believe. Uh, set in the future or the past or a galaxy far, far away, we're not quite sure, a peaceful town on a remote planet is threatened by a centralized army that is hunting rebels, thrusting the mysterious Korra, played by Sophia Batella, in the middle of a war. With the aid of Townsman Gunner, she must get the band back together to ch- challenge this new threat. Stu... Um, Snyder, Zack Snyder has made no secret about this, the fact that this was a rejected Star Wars concept um, that was shelved by Lucasfilm. Um, should it have stayed shelved? Oh, yes. It, it, <laughs> it really, really should have. I, 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 didn't, I didn't get this film at all. It, I'm normally quite receptive of these big sci-fi franchises, but the fact that this was rejected as a premise by George Lucas and Lucas, Lucasfilm and the fact that it's gone straight to Netflix and it's it's not got had a cinema release doesn't bode well no and and and, and so I went in skeptical which is always a bad place to start um, because then you find yourself sort of picking it yeah. <laughs> as you sit and watch it which is exactly what I did in our little sort of production um, WhatsApp group chat we uh I I I I've treated you all to my moment by moment running commentary, and I I just I just could not get on board with it. It, it. it is it is all style and no substance. But the problem is the style has been pinched from every other sci-fi franchise out there. Yes, I was I was I was saying well those weapons look like they came straight from the Warhammer Forty Thousand universe. Um, they might as well have started the film on a mixture of the Shire and Tatooine from the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, respectively. Yeah. Um, it's t- it's too busy. It, it doesn't know what it is. And even the first... This is part one of two. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be seeing part two. Let's put it that way. I, 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 I just... No. I, I am exasperated by this film. That's, that's, that's fair. I think, I think one of the issues for me is that... You know, Zack Snyder can get away with kind of shallow storytelling or like kind of weak characters because he usually surrounds himself with people who know how to, you know, light shots well and do, do all this like kind of impressive photography. With this and his last film, Army of the Dead, he's been his own cinematographer. Um, and that really shows when you have bad photography and then you do the slow motion so you can just see in painful gritty detail how bad this photography is but i mean you've got a, you've got a great cast Sophia Batella, who is an absolute presence in climax um you've got lovely digimon hansu who just he's just got a lovely presence you've got Beiduna from uh, uh cloud atlas charlie hunnam anthony hopkins do they do they utilize this cast in any kind of good way and he do they use it to the strengths anthony hopkins i said from the outset the minute i heard his voice he was basically just doing the voice of the Od- odin from the thor movies which you could argue that's just anthony hopkins voice but the delivery <laughs> was the same and i was like well that, that's that's odin right there um charlie hunnam um the last thing i would have seen him was the gentleman i think um okay yeah yeah and he was fantastic in that yeah and he is wasted in this he's it's 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 another empty character you can have no empathy for um sophia batella um she's done some fantastic stuff in the past i think one of the things i probably last probably saw her in and tell me if i'm wrong would have been um uh, kingsman Oh, okay. Yeah, or the, second, yes. or the sequel to The King's Man. I think it should be just the first one, the second one. But either, even so, she was great in that. Mm. Um Jean Honsu, he, he, he was obviously in Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought he was very good in that. Um, but there's all this big talent, and they're all, and they're all you know, they're going to be expensive as well. And, and, and you just sort of look at the budget for this thing, which was, what, 
it was a hundred and I have this sound I did write this down too much for it, it was too much it was it was it was 166 million oh my god how and why just because of the casting the amount they spent on some subpar CGI hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and it's too long. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and it's just the first part. But to be fair, um, the Snyder Cut for the Justice League was a lot better than the original version. So yes. if you have any investment in this franchise, maybe wait for the Snyder Cuts, because allegedly there's um, much, more, much more action and violence and character stuff that we can maybe attach to this universe. But Rebel Moon Part 1, in its current form, is a Certificate 15, and it's streaming on Netflix. Cambridge 105 Radio. What makes a great movie? It's got to involve you from the very beginning, keeping you on the edge of your seat, making you laugh, cry, or even scream in horror. Sometimes it's a four-hour art house epic from the Philippines. Sometimes it's Dwayne Johnson blowing stuff up for 90 minutes. Every fortnight, the Cambridge Film Show will tell you what's great and what's not so great in our city cinemas. The Cambridge Film Show, a Saturday at midday on Cambridge 105 Radio. In need of legal advice you can trust, Woodfine Solicitors offers a range of expert and award-winning legal services, whatever your problem. If you've been charged with a road traffic offence but need your driving licence for your livelihood, Woodfines can help you deal with the police and courts. Contact our team of traffic lawyers for high-quality advice. Find out more about what we offer at woodfines.co.uk. Woodfines. Cutting through the red tape. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. You're listening to The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio, and we're about halfway through our bumper lineup of post-holiday films in cinemas and on streaming. Uh, I'm Lurkin, and with me are Mark, Will, Vicky, and Stu. Um, now here's the trailer for One Life. That's really not about me. We are working to evacuate these children by train to safety in Britain. Why are you doing this, Mr. Winton? Because I may be able to do something about it. I must. Go. Now. Mark, uh, you've caught this one. What, what, how can you kind of tell us a bit more about One Life and what to expect? Well, I actually remember this. Sorry, I actually remember this from it, the the event that happened in real life, which forms the the centre point of the film. Mm. Uh, I'm of an age to remember watching That's Life on TV uh, as a kid. Always fascinated by you know, dogs that could catch soda siphons or say sausages uh, and all the other random nonsense that used to go on on Esther Ranson's program. But it did have some very touching stories as well and some some real human stories. It was a, a champion of consumer rights. And then it had stories like this, and this featured Nicholas Winton, who was an unsung hero of, of pre-World War II, helping to evacuate over 600 Jewish children from, from pre-war Czechoslovakia, but had never sought any credit for it. Uh, he was looking to try and make sure that some of the material around this was archived uh, while he was still alive and uh, was looking for somewhere to, to have it stored, and, and the word got through to the producers of the That's Life programme. And there was this incredible moment on the programme where he was introduced and they went through some of the the catalogue of the, the that he'd recorded at the time mm. and then it was revealed that he was sat next to one of the children he'd helped to escape
escape. And then there's a follow-up program that happens uh, the, the following week when almost the entire audience is composed of other children that had been found. So I can remember these things actually happening and being incredibly moved by this uh, back on that's life in the 80s um and you know so it's not a spoiler i don't think to be saying that this is the sort of center point of the film but what you actually get uh, are the two counterpoints of the story uh, anthony hopkins playing uh, nicholas winton in later life really trying to reject any sense of his his heroicism in this and johnny flynn playing him in the the just prior to world war ii era mm. um, realizing the sense of responsibility he has and the opportunity he has to help so many people uh, and this ticking clock of how many he will actually be able to help before the nazis invade and before war is declared um, so th- th- there's an interesting counterpoint between these two stories i think the one thing i would say is that um, th- there's never any incredible sense of drama. This is uh, more a reflective piece on quite what drives people to actually do some of these incredible things sometimes and uh, the, the ways in which they go about them. It's not sensationalist. It's not uh, massively melodramatic. It's it's not going to have you clenching the fingernails into the seats because of the tension. Yeah. But at the same time, it's an incredibly well-made film that's full of good performances. Uh, so with both Johnny Flynn and Anthony Hopkins portraying the different aspects of, of life of Nicholas Winton. And I think it's what a friend describes to me as like a Sunday morning film. It's the kind of thing that you can sit down on a Sunday morning. Uh, you know, it is uh, emotionally engaging without being too intellectually demanding. Uh, and you know, it's a, an interesting snap of two particular periods in history one reflecting our culture and the way in which we interpret these things and one representing the event itself well you, you mentioned kind of the cast though like I'm, I'm a big fan of fan of Johnny Flynn's music he's a very talented singer but I, his acting is another thing altogether how does how does he cope acting as young Anthony Hopkins effectively uh, you know I'm going to make a confession here that I'm a big fan of Johnny Flynn as well and didn't realise till after till the credits came up that he, it was actually him in the film because I, I so often hear his voice singing and, and don't associate it with the face yeah, so yeah. shame on me frankly uh, but I'll know for next time no I think he does a, he's got the bulk of the weight of the acting to do actually because um, all Anthony Hopkins has to do is to sit there passively reacting to these things which are being shown to him or, or being Uh, impacted on him whereas Johnny Flynn is the active person who's desperately trying to get uh, the visas and all the other components which need to be factored into this uh, also being supported by uh, Helena Bonham Carter playing his mother who's also deeply involved in the work in the UK while he's actually in Czechoslovakia helping to make this happen Um, and you know it's it's a it's a well-grounded performance it's not going to win any awards but certainly I, I can't find any particular objections with it shall we say. Oh, one last question. Do you think you'd prefer Anthony Hopkins' performance here or in Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire? <laughs> I mean, based on what Stuart said, I'm not tempted to rush to see that. I will watch Anthony Hopkins in almost anything. You know, he'll elevate even uh, the, the least of films uh, and he'll steal scenes in the greatest of films. Mission yes. Impossible 2 being being one of my shining examples of, of Hopkins' greatness. Uh, but, you know, I think, yeah, he's, he's here... In the same way, in an understated role, you know, trying to pay tribute to the greatness of a particular man, um, it's it's not about Hopkins' greatness in this case, it's about Nicholas Winton's greatness. Cool. Well, One Life is a Certificate 12A, and it's playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. Uh, changing tact entirely, we're moving to the latest Arden animation in Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. Last time we broke out of a chicken farm. Well, this time, we're breaking in. You may- It's an impossible mission. They're going to turn everyone into nuggets. Find those chickens. Hang on, Fowler. 
there go the goujons. The chickens from the first film have found a peaceful respite after escaping Tweedy's farm in the last film, um, but they're now alerted to a new threat on the mainland, and the old gang must break in to rescue their fellow poultry. Stu, I'll start with you on this one. Um, as a fan of Ardman Animation, is this another gem for the catalogue? I, I would say, uh, straight off the bat, I would say yes. I mean, I, I know this film's had a little bit of sort of controversy around it in its casting decisions when, when it's sort of come together and they've, they've had their fair amount of challenges putting it together. But I, I think, uh, uh, for me, as a, as a uh, someone who's grown up with these films, so you have to remember the first Chicken Run film came out all the way back in 2000. So that's a very long time, 23 years. It makes me feel very old. Um, and and it's, I, I think it's still retained the charm not just of the Chicken Run movie that came before it, but of the of the Aardman Animation Studio as a whole. Um, I think it's a welcome return to some proper claymation. I know a lot of the Aardman style has been used in recent films in CGI movies, mm. um, and, and I think it, it's it, they've gone back to Belt and Braces proper proper claymation, and I and I and I really loved it. Excellent. Vicky, did this bring back any nostalgia for you? You're a fan of the original? I was a small child when this uh, the original Chicken Run was released, and I used to love it. I used to watch it on repeat. I used to love Wallace and Gromit. It's cartoons I've... De- well, claymation cartoons that I've definitely grown up with. And uh, to be honest... Um, yeah, I I didn't quite get the massive bout of nostalgia that I feel when I watch, you know, Wallace and Gromit over Christmas time. They're playing on repeat. Um, I would also do the same with Chicken Run. I don't think that'll be the case for this film. I thought it was a nice throwback to characters that I once recognised, um, but in a completely different universe. Um, I think a, a massive change in this is like the colour scale as well. I'm used to like a kind of muted British society of colours. And this is very much tropical, um, bright, and and a lot of kind of, yeah, just a lot of bright blues and pinks that I just was a shock to the vision that I, I didn't expect. And maybe that's what, because there was so many changes, not in the voices as such, but just in the universe that I just, I didn't quite fall as in love, maybe because I had an expectation. But this is your first Aardman film as a kid. Maybe this is it for you. I, I, I wouldn't ha- I wouldn't know. <laughs> Uh, well, the original, I remember being um, uh, kind of jumping off the back of what Vicky mentioned. I, I do remember the original being kind of dark, both aesthetically and in terms of the humor. Mm-hmm. Is that retained here? Uh, this, it, I actually thought it was quite funny, hilarious in parts, but it was quite predictable. Um, did have its dark moments. I think the first one's slightly darker, but it brings back a certain character, well, a certain character from the um, first one who was the actual antagonist of the of the film. And she still re- retains that darkness and evil, let's just say. Uh, Mark, it was given a very brief theatrical run, uh, pun intended. Um, <laughs> do, did it deserve one, in your opinion? I, I think it's good to see films like this on the big screen because you do appreciate the, the craft that goes into them. You know, Aardman are still very much about the craft. You know, they're actually, I think, quite keen for you to still be able to see the fingerprints of the animators in the claymation. Um, did it deserve it on the basis of the the story it's telling and, and the emotions it might generate? That I'm slightly less convinced by. Uh, you know, this doesn't quite hit the peaks of either the humour or the action that some of the, the previous Ardman entries have achieved. Um, it, it feels like a slightly lesser work in their canon. Um, but, you know, if it brings people to other works that they've made, then so much the better. On the subject of the of the of the craft, um, so one of the things that's quite interesting is is, is that there's probably about in 2005 there was a huge warehouse fire at Arden Animations and they mm. lost a lot of their original props, a lot of their puppets, etc., and all that. Um, and so 
for this film, a lot of them were recreated, and the and the, and the animators and the and the people who do the claymation crafting were they resorted to reference photos taken from the film's making of book to try and bring these characters back to life. So, if you ever want to appreciate the craft, that's a prime example of the amount of effort that goes into these movies, and particularly because principal photography started, I think, back in two thousand nineteen. These also take a very long time to make. Mm. Um, I was actually going to say, um, well, basically, it's only a rumor at this minute, but Ardman Films may actually limit the amount of films they do in the future because the company that make the, that actually create the clay, um, they've actually shut down because husband and wife have actually decided to retire. So I think we should just make the most of what we've got for now <laughs> and um, just <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> well, hopefully more wondrous uh, Ardman animation to come in the future. Chicken Run, is uh, Dawn of the Nugget is a certificate PG and it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, now we're going from one animation style to an entirely another with The Boy and the Hair, and we don't have a trailer for this one because it would be largely uh, Japanese language. Um, so I'll go straight to Vicky. As a resident otaku, uh, what's your history with Ghibli, and uh, how did you find this? Um, <laughs> I didn't quite know I had that nickname. Um, in such, uh, as well as, uh, you know, good old Oddman, uh, Ghibli films were essentially the films that I was watching on repeat consistently um i have a strong affinity for them so, you know spirited away house moon castle they mean the world to me i've definitely grown up with miyazaki films um so to hear that this was his magnum opus uh for someone that you know he has retired i'm going to say about four times mm. in in my lifetime so uh to get just one more film from him um, and to have this kind of secret buzz because this was released in Japan last year um, without any promotional uh, materials to go alongside it and then it hit the festivals and to know that something big was coming from Miyazaki, something that I haven't quite felt in many years, I was just, I, I've been awaiting this film for so long and um, for me this is Miyazaki as a whole, uh, this is his career, this is like he almost left with the wind rises which was about himself but i think this puts into perspective his life mm. and um i think it's incredible it's not what i initially thought it was going to be it's it's a much darker it's it's a darker turn in the ghibli universe but i i appreciate what it is and i I'm in love with it. I it may be his maybe fifth best film in my case, <laughs> <laughs> but it, in that in a lot of people's cases, that is their best film of all time. What he's made here. Well, even his fifth best is pretty yeah. impressive. Um, Mark, the film um, the film follows uh, the young Mahito whose mother's passed away in war. He goes to visit the family estate where he finds this kind of uh, hidden world where time doesn't really exist and life and death kind of blur together. So. There's a lot in this film with regards to like death, loss, family, metamorphosis, balancing blocks, holding up the universe. Does the film balance all of that together? I think it does, and I think people coming to this will recognise elements of, uh, of Studio Ghibli. I'll apologise for my slightly different pronunciation. I think both are valid from my understanding. Um, at least I'm going to try and claim that. Uh, but, you know, there's it, it, always such a tricky balancing act, being able to tell these uh, incredibly inventive stories to be able to try and bring these flights of fancy, but to be able to ground them in character work as well. And it's something that, that uh, these films have always done so well. Um, what was so remarkable for me here is that this feels both familiar and different at the same time it feels like it's almost bringing in a little so yeah, a non uh, miyazaki film grave of the Vi fireflies there were elements of that darkness of that film intruding here in the nicest possible way uh, alongside what you would always expect and what you would want when you're sitting down to see uh, a miyazaki film and it, it delivers on both of those aspects so well it felt really 
accomplished, really rounded, and if this is the final retirement, uh, an incredible way to round off what has been a, a, a defining career. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there is... Um there's so much in the in this film that kind of keeps you guessing, and it doesn't kind of settle on any one thing. It moves from kind of concept to concept and beat to beat, but it's still retaining this kind of like emotional completeness to all the characters, and it's it's also quite funny and shocking and scary. Um, would you say? Would you guys say this is a film for the whole family? Would you be comfortable saying that you know young kids could come with the parents to watch this, or would you kind of limit it a bit more? I think it depends um, on the the amount of Ghibli films they've watched, like how they've expanded. I think if they've if they've seen some of the darker things I gave with the fireflies then absolutely this is uh, something they'll definitely take on board but it's not it doesn't have the kind of uh whimsicalness of maybe Totoro or uh, something that um, a younger child should watch. I think this is a goodbye piece for Miyazaki who's lived through some very dark times and those are shadowed in this and um and you know I think there's a lot of complicated scenes I mean alongside great characters you know you have parakeets as a king in this and I can't wait to watch the English dub version just to see Dave Batista voice that and it may maybe the English dub is a bit more less complicated to follow but the this is a storyline of a of a person's life that it doesn't have the kind of maybe childlike wonder some of the other animations do yeah I, I think greater minds and I can probably do it, people obsess about trying to do things like watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe in in different orders in chronological or in, in order of release uh, you could take all of the, the Ghibli films and, and, or just the Miyazaki films and actually order them through a child's life and you could start at something like Totoro mm. uh, and actually you know, bring a child through into to that development just by watching one of these every year, 18 months. I would probably be positioning this is sort of maybe 10, 11, sort of slightly pre-teen and not one of the first films you'd watch but neither one of the last um, you know, but you would definitely have it somewhere on that that spectrum of bringing uh, joy, wonderment and a, a sense of inquisitiveness into a child's life Excellent Well, uh, The Boy and the Heron is to get 12A uh, and it's playing at the Arts Picture House and the Light Cinema both English language and uh, Japanese language so try to catch both if you can um, Next up, uh, we're going to uh, move swiftly on to two Boxing Day releases if we have time for both and this is the trailer for Next Goal Wins. If you're all we haven't scored one goal in the history of our country trying to have a soccer team. Goal! They scored again. Humiliation. Mark my words. Things are going to change. I got us a new coach. Oh. Something to drink? Whiskey? Well, um, directed by Taika TD and starring yeah, Michael Fassbender. Um, can you tell us a bit more about uh, what people can expect what the story is? Okay, uh, it's a really heartwarming film. One of, the one, one of the best I actually enjoyed this year. Uh, about a failed football coach played by Michael Fassbender who has to coach a ragtag group of footballers who represent American Samoa um, who are stu still can't live down the tag of being the worst team in the world after losing 32-0 to Australia. Mm. Um, I thought the casting was quite interesting uh, and I found myself people spotting all through the film so obviously Taika Waititi um, he directs it but he also played a crazy pastor in it um, you had a guy called Buola Kuale who was in Hawaii, Hawaii 5.0 TV show and a guy called Uli Letafeku who was in Young Rock um, which you know I really enjoyed um, I think it reminded me more of the Mighty Ducks 
you know, like a little rags to riches story and a little bit less crude than the film Champions, which had Woody Harrelson earlier this year, mm. last year, sorry. Um, where I think every actor brought their own skill, brought their humor, and just brought their ditziness to it at the end of the day. So I say one of the best films I've watched this year, last year, should I say. Oh, wow. Mark, uh, yeah. are you as glowing on the film as well? Uh, I'm not, I'm afraid. Uh, oh. Probably coloured slightly by the sure. fact that I remember the 2014 documentary of the same name, which actually followed the fortunes of the team, mm. uh, which was a, a fantastic piece of work. Um, and, you know, I think my perception may be slightly coloured by that. Also, I would say I'm probably a, a, a Taika Waititi defender uh, in the sense that I actually really loved uh, Saw, Love and Thunder, and I'm not ashamed of that. I mean, <laughs> some people might be. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've not had the struggles with his career that some people have. Mm. If you imagine uh, Korg from the Marvel movies uh, and then imagine an entire film filled with that character, yeah. bar maybe two exceptions, that will determine, going into this, whether or not you actually feel up for the challenge. The, the two exceptions um, uh, are, are Michael Fassbender uh, and, uh, and one of the, the team who uh, actually feel like they, they're kind of characters. But even Michael Fassbender um, is comic relief in the film in which he's the centre of attention. There, there's no grounding for the film. Everything is just sort of loose and slips over and and you know there's some there's some good comedic moments but i it, it, it makes curious choices about the way it tells its story uh, in particular the climactic moments which are told by one character telling another what's happened you don't even <laughs> see it actually happen and you know that maybe is a, an eccentric choice but it doesn't work dramatically in any sense um this for me is taika Waititi's weakest film sadly oh, dear. Well, some mixed opinions here. Uh, Next Goal wins the certificate 12A, and it's still screening at the Light and the View cinemas. Now, racing to the finish line, it's Ferrari. Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space. At the same moment in time. The corner races at you. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. sportsman or a competitor if you get into one of my cars you get in the win um Starring Adam Driver and directed by Michael Mann after an eight-year absence uh, following, I think, Black Hat was his last feature film. Um, it follows the trials and tribulations of Enzo Ferrari. Um, Mark, how did you find how did you find Mike, Michael Mann's return after such a such a long gap? And he is an eighty-year-old man. Does he bring any energy to this? Uh, he does. I was slightly cautious coming into this. Or yeah, you know, I have a, a, an affection. Maybe I probably shouldn't for people doing slightly silly accents in in films. <laughs> thankfully, they are toned down here. We're not we're not quite at House of Gucci levels. Thankfully, um, uh, I, I won't dwell on that film particularly. But no, I think this is a really strong piece of work from Michael Mann and you know a really fantastic, grounded, full of gravitas performance from Adam Driver in the central role. You know, it's it's contrasting. You know, the what actually made people want to to follow Ferrari and actually what inspired people to love that. Work world but not shying away from the consequences both in terms of their personal lives and the tragedy that surrounded uh, the unfolding events in the in the racing world as well it doesn't shy away from any of that and you know it's uh, it's well up in the michael mann canon for me 
Well, I think I think it's easy to forget what an influence Michael Mann was. He kind of came out in the eighties with once once every two or three years with just like these big hitters that really influenced a lot of the aesthetic of um, of the time. Has he updated his style to be more modern? Because I've heard some some commentary about like the CGI. There's a famous interview with Adam Driver where he kind of shut down any any kind of commentary on that. Is it does it feel like a modern film? Um, I mean, it's it's set mostly in 1957, and it, it does have that feel of a, a period piece. But what it does do quite effectively, which some other films about motor racing haven't done in recent years, is make you feel actually the sense of what it's like to be in the cockpit of one of these cars, particularly because there were so few safety devices at that particular time. And, you know, there is tragedy written right throughout this film, and you feel absolutely at the heart of it. Um, you know, bad CGI can be a distraction. If there was bad CIG, CGI here, it didn't distract me, thankfully. Cool. And was it? I've heard. I've heard people say it's, it can be gruesome at times. Is this a bit too much for some people, or would you say it kind of holds a level? Maybe the wrong person to ask, because I'm a horror film fanatic. But uh, <laughs> there, there is one particular scene of tragedy which absolutely might be too much for for some people. So I have to give people that warning. It's a 15 rating, um, and uh, you know it absolutely earns that 15 rating. But it, it is emphasizing the tragedy that that is part of motor racing and part of that sport you know and, and has continued even as safety developments have improved over the years you know it, it is an honest appraisal of what it means to be getting in one of those cars cool honest gritty uh, action biop actiony biopic uh, from michael mann ferrari is certificate 15 and it's playing at all three cambridge cinemas um sadly that's all the time we have for today's show um, could, I'll just do a round table real quick to see what people th- what people would say was their, their top film of the, of the week, Stu. Um, I think probably mine has to have been all, all I, think, I, think, I still think it's Chicken Run. Chicken Run. Yeah. M- Mark? Uh, Boy, in the, Boy in the Heron. Vicky? Boy in the Heron. And Will? Um, I guess it has to be Chicken Run. <laughs> uh, please join us on Saturday 20th. Um, until then, it's goodbye from our reviewers and it's goodbye from me. Cambridge 105 Radio.